Tale 7 of the Story of King Arthur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of King Arthur in Twelve Tales by Winona Caroline Martin. Tale 7 Adventures of Launcelot. His honor rooted in dishonor stood, and faith unfaithful kept him falsely true. Tennyson's Lancelot and Elaine. With prancing steeds and waving plumes and glittering arms, King Arthur and his gallant knights had ridden away to Camelot, where the last great diamond joust was to be held. For eight years past, this joust had been an annual occurrence. For Arthur, long before he became king, once while roaming through the trackless realms of Lyonesse, had stumbled unawares in the misty moonshine upon the skeleton of a long-forgotten king, still wearing his crown. This diadem of richly wrought gold decorated with nine diamonds, one in front and four on each side, he had placed upon his boyish head, and as he did so had seemed to hear within him the murmur of a voice saying, Lo, thou likewise shalt be king. And years after, when that mystic prophecy had been fulfilled, he had removed the gems from the crown and showed them to his knights, exclaiming, these jewels which I chanced upon are the kingdoms, not the kings. Therefore let there be once every year a joust for one of them. Thus, by nine years' proof, we shall learn which is the mightiest man among us. So for eight years the tourney had been held, and Lancelot had won the diamond each time, with the intention of presenting the entire nine to the queen when all should be his. But a rumor had gone abroad, doubtless started in jealousy, that it was no longer by his prowess alone that the mighty Launcelot was able to perform such feats of arms, but by the terror which his very name inspired. Whereupon the proud knight had decided upon a course that should forever silence that slander. When the king and his knights rode off, therefore, Launcelot remained behind pleading as his excuse a wound lately received in battle, which had not yet healed. But toward noon he got himself quickly to horse, and avoiding the beaten thoroughfare, chose the green, unfrequented paths, until as the sun was setting, he saw on a far hill outlined against the golden glory of the west, the towers of Astolat Castle. To this old fortress, realizing that he must needs seek harbage for the night, he made his way, and wound the great horn that hung by the gate. Presently there appeared in response an old wrinkled servitor, who, without speaking a word, yet made the errant knight feel he was welcome and disarmed him. Thereupon there issued from an inner apartment the lord of Astolat himself, with his two stalwart sons, Sir Tor and Sir Lavaine, and close behind them shyly stepped the one lady of the house, Lord Astolat's motherless daughter, the lily-maid Elaine. "'Whence do you come, my guest, and what is your name?' inquired the master of the castle. "'Surely, judging by your appearance, you are one of the knights that follow the great white king.' To which Launcelot replied, "'Yes, I come from Arthur's Hall, and I am one of the round table. "'But I beg you not to ask my name, "'for I am at this moment on my way to Camelot "'to joust for the great diamond, "'and for certain reasons I wish to enter the lists in disguise. "'Yet I made the mistake of bringing with me my shield "'by which I should be immediately recognized. "'I pray you, therefore, if you have such a one, "'lend me a scutcheon that is still blank, "'or at least that bears some other device than my own.' "'Willingly, stranger knight,' said the lord of Astolat, "'here is my son Tors, who was hurt in his first tilt, "'so that his shield is blank enough. "'You can have that.' 
Presently all five passed into the castle and sat down to a board where the very best of meats and vintage had been brought forth for the entertainment of the guest. There, at the earnest request of Lavaine, who had suddenly become fired with boundless admiration for the great man, Launcelot was led to talk of Arthur and his round table and his wonderful wars. And while he talked, the lily maid sat by, a silent listener, until his princely bearing and gracious courtesy had completely won her heart. At last she raised her eyes to his face, bronzed and worn with care and scarred with many soul conflict between right and wrong, and loved him with that love which was her doom. It had been decided, much to Lavaine's delight, that he should accompany the stranger to the lists and himself take part in the tournament. Early the next morning, therefore, Elaine arose endeavouring to deceive herself into the belief that she wished to bid farewell to her brother before his departure. So it happened that as she glided down the tower stairs she passed Lavaine on his way to get his brother's blank shield, and thus came upon the stranger knight alone as he stood with his back toward her, stroking the glossy shoulder of his proud charger. At the sound of her light footfalls he turned suddenly, more amazed to see the maiden standing there in the dewy light of dawn than if seven men had set upon him at once. In fact, he had not dreamed before that she was so beautiful, and now a sort of sacred fear took possession of him, for though he greeted her, she still remained silent with her rapt gaze fixed upon him as if she were looking into the face of a god. And at that look, coming through her innocent eyes, straight from her spotless soul, a swift flush mantled Launcelot's cheek for he knew that he was unworthy of such homage, and murmured sadly to himself, Alas, I am not great, save it be some far-off touch of greatness to know well I am not great. Presently, mustering all her courage, the maiden began to speak. Great Lord, whose name I do not know, although I believe it is the noblest, will you wear my favour in this tourney? Then Launcelot scarcely knew how to answer her, for before his eyes there passed the radiant vision of another whose favour he might never wear. Presently he said, turning away, that he might not see her disappointment, Fair damsel, that would be against my custom. I never yet have worn the token of another lady in the lists, as all who know me are well aware. Then in wearing mine, continued Elaine, made strangely bold by her great desire, there will be the lesser likelihood of your being recognised. "'That is true, my child,' replied Launcelot, suddenly perceiving wisdom in the suggestion. "'I will wear it. Run and fetch it for me.' So she disappeared, to return presently with a red velvet sleeve beautifully embroidered with shining pearls which she bound upon his helmet. When this was done, he looked down upon her smiling and said, "'Never yet have I done so much for any maiden living.' At which words the colour sprang into her cheeks with delight but quickly vanished again, leaving her a lily-maid indeed. By this time, however, Lavaine had returned with Tor's shield, and the two knights made ready to depart. "'Do me the grace, my child, to keep my shield till I come back,' said Launcelot, taking the unblazoned scutcheon and handing his own, upon which there gleamed the famous azure lions in jeweled splendour, to the fairy lane. Then Lavaine kissed his sister's pale cheek, and the stranger knight kissed her hand in courtier fashion after which they spurred their charges and were soon lost to sight as they dipped below the downs. Thus it came about, Elaine the fair, Elaine the lovable, Elaine the lily-maid of Astolat, high in her chamber up a tower to the east, guarded the sacred shield of Launcelot. And there, spending her days in sweet dreams and vain imaginings, she placed the shield where the first glint of sunrise might strike the jeweled lions and awaken her with its glory. After a while, however, fearing that the precious thing might become rusted or soiled, 
She fashioned for it a silken case, upon which she embroidered the devices which were blazoned on the scutcheon itself. And as she worked she made a story to herself of every dint a sword had beaten in it, and every scratch a lance had made upon it. Meanwhile the two knights rode on their way to Camelot, and as they drew near to the lists Launcelot thought it best to reveal his name to his companion. "'Launcelot of the Lake! The great Launcelot!' murmured the youth in an awed voice. "'At last I have my wish! I have seen Britain's greatest knight, and now if I might also behold her white king, the mighty Arthur Pendragon, though I were stricken blind the next moment I should be satisfied.' Launcelot smiled at this boyish enthusiasm, but made no reply, save to wave his hand toward the jousting field, which they were already entering. There Lavaine beheld, like a rainbow fallen upon the grass, a great half-round gallery filled with gorgeously attired spectators. But his eyes wandered past all this until they rested upon the royal throne where the clear-faced king sat robed in red samite, easily distinguished by the presence all about him of the emblem of the house of Pendragon. For to his crown the golden dragon clung, and down the robe the dragon writhed in gold. And from the carven work behind him crept two dragons gilded, sloping down to make arms for his chair, while all the rest of them, through knots and loops and folds innumerable, fled through the woodwork till they found the new design wherein they lost themselves. Yet with all ease so tender was the work. Above his head was set a costly canopy, ornamented with a carven flower whose heart was the wonderful diamond which was to be the prize of the day. Presently the trumpets blew, and both sides, those that held the lists and those that were the assailants, set their spears in rest, struck their spurs, and suddenly moved forward to meet in the centre of the field with such a furious shock that the hard earth shook beneath them. Launcelot, however, remained apart for a while, until he saw which side was the weaker. Then he hurled himself against the stronger, which happened to be his own order of the round table. And little need is there to speak of his prowess, for king, duke, earl, count, baron, whoever he smote, he overthrew. There were, however, in the field that day many of his own relatives. These strong men now became angered at the thought that a stranger should do, and almost outdo, the deeds of their valiant kinsmen. But one of them said, "'Do you know, I believe it is our cousin Lancelot in disguise.' To which another replied, No, that can't be, for Launcelot's never yet worn a lady's token in the lists. Then a fury seemed to seize them, a fiery family passion for the glory of the mighty Launcelot. And suddenly, like the wild waves of the North Sea, they pricked their steeds and bore down upon the knight with the red sleeve, seeking by weight of men and horses to overwhelm him. Presently, Launcelot's noble charger was lamed, and he himself wounded by a lance which pierced through the shield and mail and then snapped, leaving its head buried in his side. Fortunately, however, Lavaine had seen his beloved hero fall. With one terrible blow, therefore, he overthrew a knight of old repute and brought the man's horse to where Lancelot lay, who, despite the agony of his wound, mounted and managed in a way that seemed to onlookers like a miracle to drive his kith and kin and all the round table back to the barrier. Thereupon the heralds blew proclaiming that the prize belonged to the stranger knight who wore the scarlet pearl-embroidered sleeve. At this his side cried aloud in triumph, "'Advance and take your prize, the largest diamond of the nine. To which the victor replied, "'Do not talk to me of diamonds, but give me air, nor of prizes, for my prize's death.' And with that he and young Lavaine suddenly wheeled their horses and vanished from the field into a nearby poplar grove. There Launcelot slid from his horse and sat gasping, 
until a kindly hermit who lived near carried him into his grotto where he and Levain managed to staunch the wound. So in that peaceful spot, far from the world's rumor, the mighty Launcelot, the darling of the court, lay for many weeks in daily doubt whether he would live or die. But on that day when the victor had thus fled the lists, Arthur, sorely troubled because the valiant stranger had been too badly wounded to take his prize, and fearing in his heart that the disguised knight was Launcelot after all, called Sir Gawain to his side and said, The victor must not go uncared for. Ride forth, therefore, and find him. For wounded and wearied as he is, he cannot have gone far. And take also the diamond and deliver it into his hands. Then return and bring me word how he fares. So Gawain rode through the region round about, touching all points except the poplar grove, until he was wearied of the quest. In his wanderings, however, it chanced that he came one day to Astolat. The moment the fairy Lane's eyes rested upon his arms, she guessed him to be one of Arthur's knights, and cried out, "'What news from Camelot, lord? What of the knight with the red sleeve?' "'He won.' "'I knew it!' broke in the maiden. "'But departed from the lists with a great wound in his side,' continued Gawain, at which she caught her breath as if she herself felt the pain of the cruel lance. At that moment, however, the lord of Astolat appeared, who, having heard Gawain's story, said kindly, "'Stay with us, noble prince, and give up this tiresome search. The knight whom you seek was here just before the tournament, and has left his shield with my daughter. Furthermore, my son Lavaine is with him, so that sooner or later we shall surely learn his whereabouts.' Then Gawain, hearing that the mysterious knight's shield was here in Astolat, asked to see it, and when he perceived the familiar azure lions crowned with gold, he cried mockingly, Right was the king, our Launcelot after all. To which the maiden smilingly answered, And I was right too, for I dreamed that my knight was the greatest of the round table. Your knight? exclaimed Gawain in surprise. Then the lily maid's cheek turned rosy red, and she replied, I call him mine because he wore my token, my scarlet sleeve embroidered with pearls. At this Gawain perceived that the damsel loved the mighty Launcelot with all her heart, and suspecting, though quite wrongly, that she knew where he was hidden, said to her, Fair maiden, let me leave my quest with you, and the diamond also. For if you love, it will be sweet to give it, and if he love, it will be sweet to have it from your own hand. And whether he love or not, a diamond is a diamond. Farewell. Perhaps some day we shall meet at court and learn to know each other better. Then, kissing the white hand which received the gem, he leapt on his charger, and, faithless to his trust, caroling a love ballad, lightly rode away. After which the maid of Astolat crept to her father's side, and, gently stroking his grey hair, said, "'Father, you call me willful, but the fault is yours, for you have always allowed me to have my own way. Now I have come to ask you to let me go in search of the vein, and of the other to whom I must deliver this diamond. Otherwise I should be faithless.' as that proud prince who left his quest to me. Long the old man hesitated, but at last he said, Yes, you are indeed a willful child, yet I myself would like to learn of the knight's welfare, and besides, as you say, you have the diamond. So, having won her suit, the willful maiden one fair morning, with her brother Tor as a guide, rode towards Camelot, before whose mystic gate they met Lavaine. At his sister's earnest request, he led her across the poplar grove to the cave of the hermit, upon the rough wall of which she beheld Launcelot's helmet, with her scarlet sleeve, now cut and torn, streaming from it still. In an inner room lay the great knight himself, gaunt and wasted, 
scarcely more than a skeleton of his former self, so that at the sight a cry of pity burst from Elaine's lips. Then through many a weary day and wearier night she ministered to him until at last there came a glad hour when the wise hermit told her that her faithful care had saved his life. And all during that time Launcelot reproached himself bitterly because it was impossible for him to repay her with aught but a brother's love. When he was able to sit in the saddle, he rode with Lavaine and the maiden to Astolat to stay until he had regained a little more of his former strength. At last, however, the time came when he felt that he must return to the king's service, and wishing to give as little pain as possible to one whom he owed so much, he reminded Elaine gently of the great difference in their ages, and told her that this love of hers was but the first flash in youth, which she would soon forget when her own true knight should appear. "'And if this knight of yours should be poor,' he added, "'I will endow you with broad land and territory, even to the half of my realm beyond the sea.' and in all your quarrels I will be your champion, but more than this I cannot. While he was speaking, the lily maid, growing paler and paler, had leaned for support against the garden seat. At his last words she exclaimed, Of all this will I have nothing? Then she fell swooning and was borne away to her chamber in the tower. It happened, however, that the lord of Astolat had overheard their conversation, and although he knew that Launcelot's conduct had been blameless, nevertheless he said to him sorrowfully, you are too courteous, my lord. If you would use some roughness before you go, to blunt or break her love, all might yet be well. To which the chivalrous Launcelot replied, That were against me, but what I can do, I will. Accordingly, toward evening he sent for his shield. Then, although he knew by a little clinking sound that Elaine's casement was flung back, and that she was gazing down upon his helmet from which her sleeve was now gone, yet he did not glance up, nor wave his hand nor bid farewell, but sadly rode away, and this was the one discourtesy that he used. Then a dark cloud settled down upon the once sunny home at Astolat, for the lily maid, sitting alone in her tower, gazing at the case of Launcelot's shield, as empty now as her own life, drooped day by day. And during that time she made a little song which she sang in the evenings to the accompaniment of the moaning winds. Sweet is true love, though given in vain, in vain and sweet as death who puts an end to pain. I know not which is sweeter, no, not I. Love, art thou sweet? Then bitter death must be. Love, thou art bitter, sweet is death to me. O love, if death be sweeter, let me die. Sweet love that seems not made to fade away, sweet death that seems to make us loveless clay. I know not which is sweeter, no, not I. I fain would follow love, if that could be. I needs must follow death, who calls for me. Call, and I follow. I follow, let me die. So her heartbroken father and brothers watched her growing hourly, more like the ethereal blossoms whose name she bore, until Tor broke out in bitter words against him who had brought all this trouble upon their house, to which his gentle sister replied, Brother, it is no more Launcelot's fault not to love me than mine to love him as I do. It is my glory to have loved the greatest, and the most stainless, of all King Arthur's knights, so I am not altogether comfortless, although my love has no return. Then she besought Lavaine to write a letter word for word as she dictated it to him, and when it was done she made her last request. Father, a little while before I die, place this letter in my hand, I pray you. Then, when the breath has left my body, clothe me in my richest raiment, 
and deck my bed with coverings as beautiful as the queen's then drape our barge like a funeral pall and lay me upon it to be rowed by our old dumb servitor to king arthur's court and let us go alone i beseech you for none could speak for me so eloquently as my own silent self her father able less and less to deny his wilful child promised and eleven days later with her thin hand holding her precious letter she closed her eyes for the last time and that day there was dole in astolat one beautiful morning therefore when the blue of the skies was mirrored in the waters of the river that flowed by camelot the two armed soldiers who guarded the palace doors were amazed to behold a black barge come sailing toward them on this barge in a shroud of purest white wrapped to her waist in cloth of gold bearing in one hand a letter and in the other a fair white lily with her beautiful face framed in her unbound hair lay a maiden who seemed to be fast asleep in their wonder they attempted to question the oarsman but when they found out he would not or could not answer they cried in alarm remembering a prophecy of merlin's which had been whispered about in court he is enchanted he cannot speak and she look how she sleeps surely she is the fairy queen who has come to take our king to fairyland but while they babbled thus the king himself appeared and with some of his knights who at his command reverently lifted the maiden and bore her into the great hall presently gawain came to gaze sadly upon her beautiful face then launcelot in bitter remorse saying to himself would to god elaine that i had died for thee and last of all the queen with her maidens it was arthur however who first discovered the letter in her hand and who having broken the seal read aloud most noble lord sir launcelot of the lake i sometimes called the maid of astolat come for you left me taking no farewell hither to take my last farewell of you i loved you and my love had no return and therefore my true love has been my death and therefore to our lady guinevere and to all other ladies i make moan pray for my soul and yield me burial pray for my soul thou too sir launcelot as thou art a knight peerless while he read the ladies of the court wept bitterly and many the queen among them turned reproachful glances upon the sorrow-stricken launcelot who when he had recovered himself sufficiently to speak said sadly my liege lord and all you that hear let me tell you how much i grieve for this gentle maiden's death for she was true and sweet and beyond even my old belief in womanhood and loved me with a love beyond the love of any other woman i have ever known yet at my years however it may be in youth to be loved does not cause one to love in return and i swear my king by the honour of my knighthood that i gave her no cause willingly for such affection as her own father and brothers will testify yet sir knight interrupted the queen it seems that you might have shown her some little kindness that would have prevented her death your majesty replied launcelot you force me to speak plainly she would not be content unless i wedded her that i who long ago took the king's most holy vow to love one only could never do all that i could i offered her but she would none of it and so at last she died then at arthur's command the pure sir percival lifted the maiden and bore her to the richest shrine in all the realm and with gorgeous obsequies to the rolling music of the mass while the king and his court stood around they lowered her beautiful head into the dust of half-forgotten kings later a costly tomb was raised above her resting-place upon which was set her image with a carved lily in her hand and the shield of launcelot at her feet 
while blazoned in letters of gold and azure was the account of her sad voyage for all true hearts to read such is the story of elaine and the mighty knight sir launcelot of the lake whose honour rooted in dishonour stood and whose faith unfaithful kept him falsely true for when he turned away from the tomb he passed out alone into the night to mourn and to wrestle with his troubled spirit not knowing he should die a holy man end of tale seven the adventures of launcelot